Well, thank you, Tim and Dale and Wayne. Thank you for what y'all do each and every week. When Tim asked a few minutes ago for you to turn to somebody beside you and tell you what, tell them one thing you're thankful for, I looked at Carson and I bent down and I said, I'm thankful for you. And she immediately turned away from me and looked at Kelly and said, I'm thankful for you, Mommy. I mean, that's just... It's just the way it is as a dad. So, that brings us to our topic for the day. I had a mini crisis sitting there, or at least making something out to be worse than it really is. But our title today is Three Ways to Handle a Crisis, and we'll be in Daniel chapter 2, and we're going to read a lot of scripture. It will be on the screen, thanks to Tim. But I invite you just to turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 2. We'll start reading in a little bit at verse 10. But I want to ask you a question first, sort of like me sitting there a few minutes ago. Do you ever confuse an inconvenience for a crisis? Now, maybe you did before 2020, and we'll get to that in a minute. But every one of us have have a problem of being so self-centered that we can equate a flat tire with a hurricane like just hit in the Gulf. I used to think, just speaking of flat tires, I used to think that my daughters would, you know, I'd teach them to change flat tires and all this. Well, tires and wheels are so big on cars now, Kelly, Kelly can't even take the thing off, let alone you know, pick up the spare to put on there. Her car has a full-size spare, not a little donut. So I, I imagine in the right situation, that is, that is a really difficult thing to be on an interstate with cars whizzing by you this close, 80 miles an hour. That's why you just, just call somebody. But still, we can equate that with the crisis like people are going through in the Gulf right now. Every time there's a major disaster, a hurricane like that, I find, without even looking for it, I find images that show a few days before the storm, and you can just drag the picture over, and it shows you before and here's after. And places are just obliterated. Roofs, buildings, neighborhoods, just gone. It just looks like just rubble. It is rubble sitting there. And then it'll go through and show you eight or ten pictures from this area, and here's what it was before, and here's what's left. Those people are in a crisis, and we're thankful that there are, there are churches, there are Christian organizations, there are, there are organizations from whatever belief, and a government that will help in those times. Also, sometimes we equate, and I've had this happen, uh, the AC going out in July with losing your job when you're already living paycheck to paycheck. The definition of a crisis, there's two of them, is a time of intense difficulty, trouble, or danger, or a time when an important or difficult decision must be made. In our year, 2020 has taught us to see the normal inconveniences of life, how they differ from something that is truly a time of trouble for a whole bunch of people. Before it turned 2020, I kept seeing uh, on social media little memes, and, and the, the gist of it was 2020 is going to be lit 
and I don't even use that word because I don't try to be cool and hip and use the latest words, but 2020 is going to be lit, and it just showed all the holidays and how many of them fell on a weekend. So like for the 4th of July, you get Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, or on the next holiday, you get the Monday with it. So they were showing how many of these holidays, did you see that? How many of these holidays included an extra day off, and it was 2020 is going to be this one big year-long party. Boy. They, they, they missed that one when they made their little meme, right? 2020 has been something that my grandmother has described the polio epidemic from back in the 40s, and she had an infant, and she couldn't leave her house for months with this infant, and her husband got to go to work, but then they had to come straight home, and they didn't go to church, they didn't go anywhere else, they just, they went where they had to go to buy food, and they came back home. And she stuck by herself as a 25, 26-year-old with her first baby, not knowing what to do, and you can't have friends over. Well, for the first time in my lifetime, and I imagine the first time since then, we've experienced that this year. And it's changed stuff, and it has wiped out jobs, and it has wiped out some jobs probably forever. They're just not going to exist like that anymore. And then on top of all of that, the civil unrest, the social unrest that we're facing week after week after week, there's something new every month that adds to this. And we truly have been in a time of crisis. Well, while the difference between an inconvenience and a crisis is debatable, and all of us exaggerate sometimes, This year, we have truly been affected, every one of us. Some of us are working from home and trying to figure out how to handle that along with teaching your children several days a week. And you say, I I don't trust myself to teach myself some of these vocabulary words and this level of math. I, I can't do that level of math. And if you haven't done math for 15 or 20 years, you go back and find out really quickly, you might be on a third grade level when it comes to math. So how are you going to teach your seventh grader this math? Wow. So we're experiencing some difficult times, and you know, all of us have had to make difficult decisions. I have a friend who's made the difficult decision of he and several other friends have hired a recent graduate student uh, from college, but their degree was in education, and the person didn't get a job. So two or three families have hired this person to come in four days a week until school goes further and further, letting them come to school. And they are paying this person to teach their kids because every one of the parents work and they're not able to work at home. His wife is a teacher. She's in the classroom with other kids, not hers. So they've had to make that financial arrangement with this educator to come to their home and to teach their children because they don't have the time to do it. In Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had a disturbing dream. And he called in his wise men and demanded that they tell him not only the meaning of the dream, but the dream that he had. He said, I want to know what this dream means, but I want you to tell me what I dreamed. The wise men said repeatedly, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. But the king refused. He wanted them to tell him the dream, and he probably thought if they truly had these magical, mystical powers that they bragged about, that they wouldn't have any trouble telling him what he had dreamed. And if they couldn't do it, they must be frauds. So look with me at Daniel chapter 2. And we'll start in verse 10. The astrologers replied to the king, No one on earth can tell the king his dream. 
And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among people. The king was furious when he heard this, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. So needless to say, and the friends, you've, you're familiar with their names, I'm sure, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and a lot of jokes have been made about, about their names. But needless to say, Daniel and his friends were truly in a crisis, and it happened instantly. In a day, they were in a crisis. Their lives were in, lives were in jeopardy. So I want us to look today at three simple ways how they handled their crisis and how we can apply that to the things that we are facing or any other thing you are facing. There's the known crises that people are facing here, the nationally known things, but then there are, there are those things that individuals in this room are dealing with that everybody else doesn't know about or maybe nobody knows about it, but you're dealing with it. Let's, let's look at how they address that and learn from it today. First of all, it's not a last resort, it should be a first resort, was prayer. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, which was their Jewish names, what had happened. And he urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so that they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. Daniel 1.20 says, the previous chapter, says that King Nebuchadnezzar had found these four guys to be ten times wiser than the wisest men of Babylon. They were so much superior. They were better than his enchanters, his astrologers, his magicians. He had already seen that. So we know that these guys were really good problem solvers because God had blessed them with knowledge and the ability to understand and to see. God had given them that. So they were good problem solvers. They could have started out on their own and tried to figure things out and worked up a plan, tried to buy some time. They, they, could, have, they could have made a plan concocted something, which is what we're prone to do. Something happens, we've got to figure it out. What, let, let's put our heads together or let me think about this for a while instead of simply going to our Father in prayer. Instead of relying on their intelligence or their connections, the first thing they did was ask God for help. So what do you do when a crisis hits? Try to handle it yourself? Make that plan? Call everybody you know? Posted on Facebook asking 10,000 friends of yours to pray for you about this. Start a GoFundMe account. How are, how are you handling things when they suddenly hit you and you don't know what to do? Prayer says, God, I welcome you to intervene in my life. And I need your help fixing this mess. I can't do it. But I know you can and I trust you to take care of me. That's what prayer says. A crisis reminds us, reminds us of our limitations and our weaknesses. You see, part of the Christian life, the beginning step is acknowledging that thing that I said before with prayer. I can't. I am unable. I can't fix my biggest problem. Do you know that's one of the hardest things in life to do? To say, I can't do this. I need you to do it for me. 
Do you understand that's the major stumbling block with people crying out to Jesus for help? They don't want to acknowledge that I, I can't do this and that I'm not good enough. I need somebody that is good enough to do it for me. So are you going it alone, at least for a while? Or do you instantly think, I need God's help with this? When we're powerless to fix some problem, we can despair, or we can cry out to God for help. But i got to ask a question with that. Why would we wait until a crisis to cry out to God for help? We should talk to him daily, not just because we have to. We don't have to. We should talk to him because we want to. And when we recognize who God is and what he has done, and that he wants to have a relationship with us, we'll take time every single day to talk to him, to do what we have been singing about, to thank him for this blessing and that blessing and those three things that we have been overlooking for the past however long. We should start our day in prayer. That doesn't mean that I'm telling you you need to get up every morning and have your quiet time, your devotion time before you get out of bed. That's what some people do and some people don't. Some people work better in the evening. Some people work better at lunch. But the point is that we are drawn to having intimacy with him. A regular time where we talk to him, lift up our concerns to him, using whatever model of prayer you want. Sometimes you don't have time to do a model of prayer. You just have three seconds to say, Father, I need you. Or, Father, thank you. Thank you for fixing this. I know you're going to fix this, so I thank you in advance. And if you don't fix it, I thank you for helping me to get through it. This should be a countless time a day relationship we have with our Heavenly Father. Here's another question, though. What if you have wandered off from him? And obviously we have an audience that is not just here in the room. What if you have wandered off from him? Or you've never surrendered to him at all? And you say, how can I go to him just now that I have trouble? I hate it when friends come. This is what you might be thinking. I hate it when people come to me just when they need something. I don't see that family member until their car's broken down and they know I can help them fix it and they don't have to go pay a mechanic. They don't call me till they need something. And I don't want to do God that way. You know, that's ridiculous. He knows that we need him and that we're helpless without him. And he waits for us to come to him. And he's not going to reject you and turn you away when you finally come to your senses and say, there's only one source that I have for the solution to my problem. It is with joy that he has for us when we acknowledge him is the giver of all good things and our only source of help and salvation. In Matthew 18, 12, Jesus said, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? So don't be afraid that God is going to reject you because you've wandered off from him or you've never come to him and now you don't want to treat him like that bad friend. Go to him. He will receive you. He will will look for you. He will let you find him. Just like the shepherd looking for the sheep. Jesus, our great shepherd. There's never been a bad time to come to God. And only fools refuse to do so. Did you get that? There's never been a bad time to come to God. Let your crisis take you straight to him. Only fools refuse to do that. Only pride tells me that I can't go now. This isn't a good time. 
You may have heard me say this in the times that I've preached up here before. It's a common quote. I'm going to use it again, and even though I may have used it previously. But C.S. Lewis calls pain God's megaphone. He wrote, pain insists upon being attended to. We have to take care of it. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences. But he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So prayer was the first thing these guys did when a crisis hit. And the second thing they did was praise, as we have sung about this morning as well. Look with me at verses 19 through 23. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things, and he knows what lies hidden in the darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we ask of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. And you might be thinking, sure, it's easy to praise God after you get what you ask for. But Daniel hadn't yet told the king what that dream meant, what it was, what it meant. And it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Daniel praised God even though God's answer to his prayer was this. Look at verses 31 through 45. Told you we're going to be reading a lot of scripture. This is Daniel speaking to the king. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits, and the whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. And then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That was the dream. And now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom, inferior to yours, will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one, as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided. 
Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron. But while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by affirming alliances with each other through intermarriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all of these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. This is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. And God told Daniel to tell the king the next several hundred years of world histories, the successive rulers, the kingdoms, and that he would establish his church, send his Messiah, and that would conquer all of that and nothing would ever defeat it. So Daniel praised God even though his answer to prayer required him to walk into the king and tell him everything that you are, everything that you have built, everything that you're about is soon to be destroyed. And it's going to be blown away and there won't even be a trace of it the rock in the king's dream was Jesus the coming Messiah Daniel was a captive in Babylon Jerusalem and the temple were still in ruins his life was in danger and he praised God before he even told the king the meaning of the dream before he knew what was going to happen to him a thumbs up or a thumbs down. He praised God. He knew that God was in control no matter how things turned out for him personally. He simply trusted God so he could praise God. Do you praise God no matter what? Or only when things are going well? Any of us can praise God when things are going well. It shows who we are, what we're made of, when we can praise God in the middle of the crisis in the middle of the storm. Psalm 34, 1 says, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak His praises. The third and last way they responded to their crisis was with proclamation. Backwards a few verses, 25 through 28. Ariok quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I have found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. The king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, Is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? And Daniel replied, There are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Daniel had no idea how the king would respond, but he boldly stood before him and said, Let me tell you about my God. You have never seen anything like this. Let me show you what he has shown me. Let me just tell you about my God. Did he take credit for what God had told him the night before? He could have gone in there, acted like a big shot, and just given God none of the credit, none of the glory. 
I love it when I hear, this is a little soapbox, but I love it when I hear people stand in a place like this, especially in, in big conference centers, and they tell you how many people they have won for Jesus. And they spend 20 minutes telling you about this event and this event and this event, and they have all the numbers to go behind it. And I just want to ask them, why did you count? Why did you count? Why are you giving me those numbers of what happened in your ministry the time you spoke? Do you see where the focus and the attention was? Now, I know that we count. We use numbers. But there's a way to use numbers to glorify self. And there's a way to use numbers to glorify God. Daniel didn't glorify himself this. He gave all the attention, all the award, all the praise, all the glory to his God who had given him the answer that he so desperately needed. Because most people handle pain so poorly, the world notices when somebody handles it well. And they want to know how we did it. I'm not going to take the time to tell the whole story, but there was a Green River killer that murdered countless, I can't even remember the number, women. 80s, 90s, I don't remember exactly when it started. Just go look it up, Green River Killer. Look at his trial. The judge let, as this guy was being sentenced, his sentence was going to come down, he let family members from these people come and tell these, this, this killer what they wanted to. And he just sat there stone-faced as person after person told him that he was going to rot in hell and on and on and on and on. And then there was this one older, white-bearded, white-haired guy. That's what I want you to look for. It's on YouTube. He stood up and he said, I think his name's Gary, the killer. Gary, there's a lot of people here that hate you, and I'm not one of them. He said, but you've made it very difficult. You killed my daughter, and you've made it very difficult for me to live what my father tells me that I have to do, which is to forgive you. But I forgive you. And that killer had sat there stone-faced for all that time as people stood and just cursed him and and damned him stone-faced. But when this old, white-bearded, white-haired man said, I forgive you, the tears just flowed. And everybody wanted to know what was in this old man's heart. They didn't have to wonder. He told them, my God tells me that I have to forgive you. And I'm sure that that's been, that's been almost 20 years. That guy's probably no longer with us. But his story lives on. It lives just on YouTube where he stood in one of the most crushing moments of his life. He told what he was, what he was about, and how he was able to offer forgiveness to this guy who had taken his daughter away from him. So when Christians handle pain well, we earn the right to tell other people how we did it or how we are doing it. Our pain will likely provide our greatest chance to share Jesus with unbelievers. And we can write books about it. Even so, most of us rarely say a word about Jesus because we are scared. Either we're scared to offend or we're scared we'll be asked questions that we can't answer. There's a pastor and an author named Brian Chappell and he said, we rob ourselves of God's power when we let circumstances steal the name from our lips, steal God's name from our lips try to be quick with this, but there's two reasons that we may not feel prepared to answer questions about Jesus and to give him glory like Daniel did when we have the opportunity. 
when we face crisis and we're in pain or we're going through pain, there's, there's usually just two reasons that we don't speak up. The first is we're not prepared. Either a new Christian or just a lazy one. We learn about the things that we care about. So get to work. You can start by being here every week. We learn about things that we care about. This was illustrated Monday morning, Monday at lunch, with Dr. Page and Tim and I sitting at Fats having lunch. And Dr. Page sitting right here beside me. Tim sitting across, and he already knows what I'm about to say, and he's getting ready to laugh. Tim's sitting over there, and for two or three minutes after we sat down and we're waiting on our drinks to come, Tim and I are just talking about sports, talking about sports, talking about sports, just random stuff from one top to another. And as Tim's talking to me for, you know, seconds, enough for the thoughts to go through my mind, I'm not really listening to him at one point. I'm saying, he's about to have a meltdown. He can't handle it. He's about to have a meltdown. Need to change the subject. Need the subject. He's going to say something, and I was totally wrong. He didn't say a thing. Dr. Pace started making snoring noises, just And then he said, he did speak. He said, how do you know all this stuff? And I said, same way you know about Stonewall Jackson and George McClelland. Because we learn about what we care about. Do you care enough about Jesus to learn about him? The second reason that we don't speak up is the fear factor. We're just scared because we've never done it. You know, it took me forever to go jump off the diving board, the high dive, 10-foot high dive when I was a kid. But once I did it, they could not keep me off the thing. Come on down, it's time to go. And I'm up there jumping off the high dive again. Because once I did it, I experienced how much fun it was and the exhilaration of doing something that I'd been missing out on. If you give God your time, daily devotional, church attendance, personal study, you're more prepared to speak up for Him than you already know. Because there is a cumulative effect that just builds to putting yourself under Christian teaching week after week after week after week, year after year after year. You may not recognize how much you know, but if sermons or studies often seem like review to you, that is a good thing. That's a good thing. You could teach those lessons yourself if given the opportunity. So guess what? Take the opportunity. There's only so many preachers, Bible teachers, pastors, staff people, and that leaves the rest. They're not the only ones. We're not the only ones that are supposed to be doing all the teaching. You have opportunity and you have knowledge. So take those opportunities and teach. Don't be afraid to tell people what God says in His Word. God isn't silent on our day's social issues. He speaks. He has spoken. And those words are true. Every Christian is a teacher. On the other hand, if you only attend church occasionally... You don't have this cumulative effect. Your cumulative effect is stunted. You see the importance of being here even when you don't feel like it week after week after week after week? You see the importance of regular church attendance, particularly with children that you're trying to raise instead of having them spending their interest and their energy and all kinds of other things that is not building that cumulative effect of knowledge of Jesus so that they can grow to love him more because they know about him more and they've seen him do things in their life more that they can attribute directly to him. Don't stunt your children's growth by having them do X, Y, and Z instead of being involved with their life centered around the life and work of a church. If you've been missing that, not building this cumulative effect, either you or for your family, the good news is 
you can start right now, today. So get started. Chapel also said, when we learn enough of God to express Him before others, we begin to know Him well enough to entrust Him with our lives. I pray that you will, if you haven't already, center your life, your family's life around Jesus so that they can begin, if they haven't already, to entrust Him with their lives. I like that. I like that phrasing, entrusting Him with our lives. And when we do it, the various crises that we face will cause us to run to Him instead of away from Him. Nobody wants a crisis. As a group, we're probably in one that we hopefully will never see anything like this before, but I'm not sure that that is going to be true. But we should be learning how to handle them, how to handle the next year like this that comes. Maybe you're in the middle of a personal crisis right now that nobody else here knows about. Remember how Daniel handled his with prayer and praise and proclamation. As we come to this time of invitation, I pray that you would surrender your life to Jesus for salvation if you have never done so, or with making him the Lord of your life if you're not currently living with him as your priority. Pray with me. Father, we love you, and in this time of surrender, invitation, speak to us, change us, guide us, give us the courage necessary for us to give you what you're asking from us. Just our heart, our love, a step of surrender. We give you this time and we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name.